How does one explain the reason for the intelligibility of nature? How can one account for the repetitive order found in existence? Some mistakenly assume that such questions must inevitably lead to antagonism between science and faith, but this is not true. Increasingly, what was once known as the God Hypothesis is resurging in serious scientific debate. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my life, watching America. Oh my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Neo-Darwinism has played a really crucial role in answering the ultimate questions for atheists. It functions as something like a secular religion. And I think that accounts for spit and vinegar that you find in this debate. If you begin to challenge the scientific basis of Darwinian theory, or if you begin to point to some of these extraordinary discoveries that on their face suggest uh, intelligent design. Many people who have associated the enterprise of science with a kind of materialistic worldview or atheistic uh, perspective will often push back very hard because at some level they recognize that not only is their scientific perspective being challenged, but their default personal religion is being challenged. What I try to do is extricate the discussion from those motivations on one side or another. There's also obviously motivations for theists to want to believe in God. We all have a sense of the difficulty of the human condition and of our ultimate mortality. So just as there's a motivation not to believe in God because we, none of us really want the accountability to um, a higher moral authority, there's also a motivation to believe in God because we all would probably appreciate the comfort of knowing that there may be some ultimate meaning to our existence. Look at what the evidence says, irrespective of those competing internal motivations that we may have on either side. Ah, oh, any reason at all to play Bob Dylan, you know I'm going to go for it. That is a chamber music version, as you can tell, of All Along the Watchtower, which was featured in the beginning of the motion picture, documentary motion picture, entitled No Intelligence Allowed. The director of that was Nathan Frankowski. But most of you will remember it if you've seen the documentary by it being uh, really a work featuring Ben Stein as he went on a quest to find out why can't you have uh, multiple themes of the origin of life presented in schools. And it was during the documentary that I first encountered and became aware of Dr. Stephen C. Meyer. Now, Dr. Stephen, Stephen C. Meyer has a PhD in philosophy of science from Cambridge, but moreover, he has written many books on the subject of how perhaps there is not necessarily a need for an antagonistic relationship between science and faith. And he is a big proponent of the notion of indeed intelligent design. Um, many, many people might want to you know, discredit that right off the bat and say, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to listen. Well, um, you, are, you are doing yourself a disservice. Uh, his work has been, for instance, his book entitled DNA and the Evidence of Intelligent Design uh, was named Book of the Year by the Times of London, which I can assure everyone is no small feat, to say the least. His latest book, as I've said, is called the return of the God hypothesis. So uh, without any further uh, waiting or delay, let's get right to it. Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, welcome to Watching America. It's terrific to be with you, Alan. Thank you for having me on. Uh, may I call you Stephen? Uh, of course. Okay, sure. great. Well, Stephen, your book contains so much. Um, I already recognize that it would be impossible to completely capture uh, everything contained in it during this interview, which is reason for people to indeed buy the book. But I was wondering at the outset, can you tell us the main argument that you present in The Return of the God Hypothesis? Right, exactly. Well, it, it, the argument of the book builds on the case I made in two prior books, one called Signature in the Cell and the other called Darwin's Doubt, in which I argued that the digital information and the information processing system that's present in even the simplest living cells points to a designing intelligence of some kind. 
Um, from the late 1950s, we've learned that DNA contains information in a digital form. This was the great sequence hypothesis of Francis Crick, the idea that uh, inside the twisting helix of the DNA molecule, there are uh, chemical subunits that are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text or like uh, the zeros and ones in a section of software. Our uh, local hero out here in the Seattle area, Bill Gates, says the DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. Richard Dawkins, the uh, noted uh, scientific atheist and proponent of, of neo-Darwinism, himself acknowledges that DNA contains machine code. And in fact, in a, in a tweet just yesterday, he said that he was knocked sideways by an animation showing the sophisticated data processing capabilities within living cells. Um, I've argued that that data processing capability and, the, and the, the information itself must be the product of mind. We know from experience that whenever you see information or whenever we find it, especially in a digital or alphabetic form, and we trace it back to its source, whether we're talking about a computer program or a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or information transmitted over a radio signal, when you get back to its ultimate source, you always come to a mind, not a material process. So in the first two books, I argued that the information that we see in biology points to a designing mind of some kind. In this book, I've extended that argument by showing that if we examine the evidence from physics and cosmology, the evidence from physics about the fine tuning of the universe that has made the universe uh, suitable for life and, and which has been present from the very beginning of the universe, and the evidence from cosmology suggesting that the universe did in fact have a beginning, that the, the best overall explanation for the design that we find in the universe is uh, a designing intelligence who is active in the creation, but also who transcends it in some way and is capable of bringing a universe and indeed a highly structured and finely tuned universe into existence from the beginning. And that I call the return of the God hypothesis, a designer that is both transcendent and active in the creation, uh, best comports with the notion of, of classical theism. Well, uh, building upon that notion, um, indeed, if you use the term return, uh, you are uh, saying clearly that there was this God hypothesis prior and that it uh, was diminished and went away. So we routinely see that science and religion have nowadays been more or less framed like uh, oil and water, adversarial is assumed, that they cannot mix. But, but many people, I think, are unaware, and I'm sure you have very much having to contend with this, not aware that the, the very methodology employed by scientific pursuit actually stems from a religious standpoint. Uh, are people yeah. surprised when you explain that to them? Yeah, that's part of the, the, the big story of the book. If I'm saying that the God hypothesis is returned, that means it had lapsed for a while, and but then prior to that, it was very significant and important to science. And indeed, it was. If we look at the period that scientific historians call the scientific revolution, uh, variously dated between maybe uh, 1500 and 1750, but now historians are even pushing the, the origin of that uh, scientific revolution back into the medieval period. Um, you find that the, the founders of modern science and the founders of the modern scientific method were deeply religious men who were um, pursuing their study of nature for profoundly religious reasons. And in fact, there were presuppositions that came out of a, of a Judeo-Christian worldview that contributed to the rise of modern science. One very important one was uh, is something called the intelligibility of nature, the idea that, there, that nature has a hidden order that can be understood by the human mind because it was a product originally of the rational mind of its creator, the same creator who gifted us with rationality and made it possible for us to understand that order that we perceive and, and observe in, in the universe. Uh, in fact, a, a mathematical order that revealed, uh, again, mind. Um, and another key proposition was that these laws we call the laws of nature that the physicist, for example, Newton was and Kepler were advancing, uh, that these were a mode of actually divine action. One historian of science has said that the concept of the laws of nature was a, was a juridical metaphor of theological origins. It was something that came out of the idea that God had created the universe, had impressed a particular order on the universe, and that God was sustaining this order on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Um, there were laws because there was a divine lawgiver or law, law sustainer. So you have all these metaphors that were used. Also the book of nature concept. There was a book of nature that could be read and understood by humans. Um, 
just as there was a book of scripture that had issued from God as well. So these sorts of concepts played a huge role in the rise of modern science in the first place. There's a fascinating epilogue to Newton's Principia called the General Scolium, which is essentially a theological epilogue to his great work, the Principia, arguably one of the greatest works of physics ever written. And uh, there he makes a, a, a very elegant uh, initial condition fine-tuning argument about the origin of the solar system and concludes by saying that the, you know, this most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This is a very different uh, context in which science was practiced at that time. Uh, we lost that for time in the 19th century, but I think this, the discoveries of the 20th and 21st century uh, in science are, are bringing that back for an increasing number of scientists. I'm going to use the analogy of, uh, of the theater. And there is the front stage, and then there's the backstage of what's going on. Um, this is just my observation, and I am ready to be corrected by you at any point. It would seem to me, as a layperson in these regards, that when it comes to the idea of acknowledging uh, intelligent design, that the, the front stage aspect is based on uh, people refuting that there has to be um, a genesis of order, no pun intended. Um, but the backstage issue is, as I've noted with some persons, and you may have actually had this experience with Michael Shermer, who has been a guest on this show. Uh, I think you even allude to something like this in, in uh, the uh, 12th chapter of your book, this idea that if we will concur with the notion that quite possibly, even if we just moderately suggest that there might be a design, then there is a designer. That leads to the conclusion that if there is a designer, are we to have a relationship with this designer? And moreover, does this designer expect things of us? Which is an abhorrent thought to many. Am I wrong in this conclusion? Well, I, I think... Uh... I have a friendly debating partner, Shermer being one, actually, but another, Michael Ruse, who's uh, written an important book in which he acknowledges that uh, neo-Darwinism, for example, has played a really crucial role in answering the ultimate questions for atheists. In fact, he says that it functions as something like a secular religion. And I think that accounts for a bit of the kind of uh, spit and vinegar that you find in this debate. If you begin to challenge the scientific basis of Darwinian theory, or if you begin to point to some of these extraordinary discoveries that on their face suggest uh, intelligent design, um, many people who have associated the enterprise of science with a kind of materialistic worldview or atheistic uh, perspective will often push back very hard because at some level they recognize that not only is their scientific perspective being challenged, but their worldview or their, in effect, default personal religion is being, is being challenged. There's also obviously motivations for theists to want to believe in God. We all have a sense of the difficulty of the human condition and of our ultimate mortality. So just as there's a motivation not to believe in God, because we, none of us really want the accountability to um, a higher moral authority, there's also a motivation to believe in God because we all would probably appreciate the comfort of knowing that there may be some ultimate meaning to our existence. Um, and what I, I try to do in the book is look at what the evidence says, irrespective of those competing internal motivations that we may have on either side. Well, can we talk about the conversation that you had with Michael Shermer? I, I found him extremely intriguing guest. Um, let me just ask you about that encounter you had. You, you make reference to it. Um, you say that over the years, I've, I've engaged in several public debates, and then you talk about your encounter at Westminster College uh, in Fulton, Missouri, and a conversation that ensued afterwards. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, right. In fact, I was just on with Michael on his podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he's he's a very uh, congenial and friendly debating partner, obviously on the exact opposite side of the issue. But we had an intriguing car ride afterwards. He'd acknowledged in uh, a couple of the debates we'd had that he, as Richard Dawkins has acknowledged, has no explanation for the ultimate origin of life, uh, even proponents of modern uh, so-called neo-Darwinism. Um, acknowledge that the origin of the first life, the first living cell from simpler non-living chemicals is, is a, a profound mystery. And in part, it's a mystery, as I explain in the book, because 
the undirected chemistry doesn't seem to produce code on its own. The, the origin of information, the information necessary to make the first living cell work and possible is unexplained by reference to any undirected chemical evolutionary process. And so when I was in the car ride with, on, with Michael, we were in a limo being driven to the airport after the debate. And he always starts debates with an account of his deconversion story, how he was a, a Christian of some sort growing up. And then he abandoned his faith when he got older, wiser, and smarter. And I said, well, what was it really that was responsible for that deconversion? He said, well, it was science, the success of science. And I said, well, what, like, what do you mean the success of science? I love science too. And he said, well, you know, things like the Big Bang Theory and the, the discovery of DNA and and I said, well, Michael, you know, you, you, you yourself have acknowledged that uh, you don't know how the information in the DNA got there. And he said, well, yeah, that's right. And, and as for the Big Bang, what, what caused that? There's no materialistic explanation for that. And he sort of nodded in acknowledgement. And I said, and then, and then there's the fine tuning. And he said, well, but there's the multiverse. And I said, but do you really believe that the multiverse is the explanation for the fine tuning of the universe? And he just said, nah. <laughs> so <laughs> when, you, when you press beneath the surface, you find that, uh, yes, science has been fantastically successful, but it's very good at answering how the universe functions. And it's good at, at describing the patterns of regularities we see it's, and, and mapping what, what's actually there. But these ultimate questions of origin are not actually questions that materialistic science has answered very well. And so there's this big lacuna in our understanding if we want to pursue only materialistic explanations. And what I do in the book is suggest that there's some classes of phenomena that should not be explained materialistically. So at the foundation of life, the foundation of the universe, we have information. And that's in our uniform and repeated experience, which is the basis of all scientific reasoning, the product of mind, not undirected material processes. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America, and I'm very happy to say as the host, Alan Campbell, that my guest is Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, and he uh, is the author of his latest book, which is entitled The Return of the God Hypothesis, which is an examination of science, uh, obviously, because he is indeed a scientist, a PhD in philosophy of science from Cambridge, but it's also an examination of, uh, of legitimate arguments that perhaps some with a little knowledge might uh, be inclined to overlook and not consider. Um, I have to back up a little bit if we if we can. Uh, you talked about the multiverse uh, in relation to M Michael Shermer talking about that on the way to the airport and what have you. And then let's get back to the fine tuning. So I'd like to address both of them because I'm sure there's listeners who are saying, wait a minute, what's the multiverse? What's the multiverse? Uh, and then we can get into um, fine tuning, uh, which your book really concentrates on. Uh, the idea that uh, we're not just in a Goldilocks zone as a planet, uh, for life to exist on Earth, but the the, the fine tuning of the universe itself uh, is placed to ensure that it does not collapse upon itself or become so hot, for instance, that we could you know just dissipate into to nothingness. So the idyllic uh, aspects to the way things are arranged. But just to back up for clarity, multi multiverse. M maybe it would be helpful to reverse the order and explain the fine tuning because the multiverse has been proposed as the kind of go-to atheistic explanation for the fine tuning. So okay, if indeed. you don't mind, I'll right. reverse the order of the question yes. just for clarity's sake. Yes. The, um, the, the big discovery, maybe a very unexpected discovery of 20th century physics is that there are multiple um, fundamental parameters of physics, the, the force that drives the expansion of the universe, the force of gravity, the, the, the four fundamental forces of physics, electromagnetism and the strong and weak nuclear forces, as well as other contingent properties, such as the mass of the elementary particles, the quarks and the electrons and so on, that have to be exactly right. They have to fall within very fine tolerances for life to exist in the universe or for even stable galaxies to form or basic chemistry to be possible. And these tolerances are very, are very small in relation to the range of possible values of these different parameters and forces. And moreover, therefore, the 
the probability of getting this combination of parameters just right is astronomically small. Just one, pro just one parameter known as the cosmological constant, which is the force that is driving the universe apart as it's expanding outward from the beginning, uh, is fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 90th power, which is an ex and one of the accepted values. Some scientists think it's even more finely tuned than that. Um, there are only 10 to the 80th elementary particles in the entire universe. So to get the cosmological fine tuning right, it would be something like sending a blindfolded person out into space, floating around looking for one marked elementary particle, but not just in our universe, but in 10 billion universes our size. The odds against getting it right are astronomically small. And so many physicists have said, well, uh, this intuitively, suggests the idea of a fine tuner of intelligent design. Fred Hoyle, who was a, a, a staunch atheist early in his career, he opposed the Big Bang theory because he thought it had uh, strong theistic implications of a creator, later came to a kind of proto-theistic position and said that the common sense interpretation of the data, the fine tuning data that is, suggests that a super intellect is monkeyed with physics. Um, in opposition to that, that kind of common sense intuition that fine tuning requires a fine tuner, um, some physicists have proposed what's known as the multiverse. And that's the idea that there are uh, billions and billions of other universes out there, each with a different combination of these same parameters of physics in different strengths and measures, um, almost all of which do not result in, uh, in life-friendly universes. But given that there are so many, there must be one somewhere that where the parameters ended up just right. And we just happen to be in that lucky universe. Uh, so that's, that's the multiverse concept. And it's the, it's the kind of uh, most popular go-to atheistic account of this otherwise uh, common sense indicator of intelligent design. One of the things that I always wonder about with, with people that reject the idea of uh, intelligent design and uh, a prime mover, if you will, uh, is is where do they get the concept that nature would have its own motivation? Now, I, I, I may be just sounding like a complete idiot here, and I'm willing to risk that. But um, in philosophy, there is what's known as entelechy, uh, and that's the idea of things working themselves out for their potential. In other words, moving to the, to the fulfillment of what they can be, hence the acorn becomes the grand oak and, and what have you. What is their explanation for that? I mean, if you have a grand designer, then I can get it. Okay, we're, we're building and we're progressing. But if you don't have a grand designer, then it seems like randomism is being proposed. Yeah, there's a, um, a, a book by a State University of New York uh, evolutionary biologist, Jeffrey Scott Turner, called Purpose and Desire. And he addresses this very, very point that the most obvious observation we have of living organisms is that they manifest purposive behavior. When I was mm. a kid, I used to love to play in the dirt and see these potato bugs, you poke them and they'd roll up into a little ball to protect themselves. And all organisms manifest um, behavior. The potato bug is rolling up into, the, into a ball for the purpose of protecting itself. It's got a hard exterior exoskeleton. And, mm. um, and this is just one of the fundamental observations of life. And where does this purpose and this desire to survive come from? Um, Darwin, Darwinian evolution presupposes it because organisms are in competition for the purpose of surviving. But where does the drive come from in the first place? It's an interesting question. Turner argues that it's not explained by, by neo-Darwinism. Um, there's also a, an historian of science at Stanford, Timothy Lenoir, who says that uh, when we describe biology, uh, our descriptions are chock full with, with teleological or purpose-driven language. We have, we have uh, information processing systems and we have replication and we have code and we have all these terms that we use to describe what's going on at the molecular level. And they're, they're, all, they're all terms which in our ordinary parlance would imply design and purpose. And yet, um, Lenoir says, you know, we're, 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 biology has a prohibition against this, but we're hard pressed not to, not to uh, use that kind of language when we describe how biology actually works. So maybe our descriptions are, are belying a, a reality that we're, we're not willing to acknowledge. 
You've just heard the voice of Dr. Stephen C. Meyer. His latest book is entitled Return of the God Hypothesis. Uh, He received his PhD in philosophy of science from Cambridge. Uh, One of his prior works was considered the book of the year by the London Times. And as I said at the outset, that is no small feat whatsoever. He is highly regarded and highly respected. And one of the most charming and I think healthy aspects to his career is his willingness to debate ideas with others who disagree with him on a regular basis. And that seems in many ways to be a lost art, uh, certainly in the arenas of thought on many universities. Uh, Have you encountered uh, great hostility before you even opened your mouth at various locations? Well, I I think earlier on this was much the case. it's been surprising to me with the release of this new book, uh, the degree of engagement I've gotten, uh, respectful engagement I've gotten from from people I might not have expected to 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 give me the time of day. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is that there is a sense that the, the what's called the new atheism is a bit past its pull date. Mm. It was quite popular in 06, 07 with big books like Dawkins's The God Delusion. But some of the arguments of the new atheists have uh, have kind of worn a bit thin. If we just go back to that question of the multiverse, one of the things that I show in the new book, and which is becoming more readily recognized, is that uh, the multiverse concept doesn't actually explain the fine-tuning. In order to generate all those billions and billions of universes, the multiverse advocates have to posit what's known as universe generating mechanisms. If they don't have such a mechanism, then all they have is a bunch of universes out there that are causally disconnected from our own. And therefore those other universes um, would not affect anything in our universe, including the fine tuning in this universe. So in recognition of that, multiverse proponents have proposed these various mechanisms that would could account for this proliferation of universes. And some of those mechanisms are based on something called string theory. Others are based on something called inflationary cosmology. But in both cases, the mechanisms that are in theory responsible for the, for the generation of new universes themselves have to be exquisitely fine-tuned in order to produce the new universes. And so the multiverse explanation takes you right back to where you started, which is unexplained fine-tuning. And yet again, in our experience, systems that are finely tuned whether we're talking about French recipes or uh, internal combustion engines or sections of uh, computer hardware, uh, such systems are always the product of mind or intelligence. And so um, I think the the swagger and the confidence of the new atheist, which uh, was on display in a decade or so ago, I think has begun to wane as these deep questions have just simply reemerged in new forms. I'd like to change the emphasis a little bit to Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, the man. Your childhood, you grew up in a a faith-based environment of some sort, I would imagine, uh, and you had a propensity to be interested in science. Uh, Did you get a chemistry set as a child or or, um, a little science kit or something? What was the, the origin of your interest in science? And what I'm particularly interested in uh, to use a well, theologically related term, but not by choice, but by convenience, is your pilgrimage um, to where you are today. All right. Well, thank you for asking. Um, I, I grew up in a nominally uh, uh, Christian home. Uh, our family ceased to practice any form of uh, religion or go to church in my adolescent years. Um, I was fascinated from a very young age with natural history, um, had the usual four-year-old uh, fascination with dinosaurs, but also fossils of all kinds. Trilobites in particular fascinated me for some reason. Um, but in my teenage years, um, I had a propensity for asking, un- to my own mind, unwelcome uh, kind of existential questions about what, 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 what's anything going to matter in a hundred years? Uh, mm. what's, what, what's this thing with time? Um, I, I had a, a, a number of questions that really bothered me, bothered me so much that I thought that maybe there was something wrong with me, that maybe the kinds of questions that were popping into my mind w- was an indicator of some sort of mental illness. Um, when I got to 
college, I ended up, in addition to taking uh, uh, physics and earth science, I took a lot of philosophy. And when, uh, when I encountered the European existentialists, um, Jean-Paul Sartre and his maxim that without an infinite reference point, nothing finite would have any lasting or enduring meaning. I thought, oh, that's what was bothering me when I was 14. Mm. And I, I talked to one of my professors about it and said, aha, I realized I, I wasn't insane. I was just a philosopher. And he said, well, be careful. There's a fine line between philosophy and insanity. <laughs> but uh, in any case, um, for me, uh, I, I had a period of, um, of conversion that was protracted. It started at about 17 or 18 as I began to really consider the claims of, uh, of the Bible, even the worldview of the Bible. It seemed to answer a number of the, the existential questions that I had. And then as a philosophy student, I became persuaded of theism uh, on the basis of uh, what's called the argument from epistemological necessity. Mm. This is crisis mm -hmm. of knowledge. How can we know anything at all? And it seemed that right. theism provided the best explanation or best account of how the human mind could be reliable so that we could actually know something. I, I explained a bit about this trajectory in my own thinking and life in the, uh, the last chapter of the book. It was later in my mid-20s when I was working as a scientist, as a geophysicist, that I attended a conference that made me first aware that there were these very compelling evidential reasons to consider theism, that the evidence as the, the, the three big things that I discuss in the book, the evidence from cosmology shows that there, as best we can tell, that the physical universe had a definite beginning in time and space, that um, the, the universe had been fine-tuned from the beginning for life, and that since the beginning, there have been these big infusions of information into our biosphere, information that is in a digital or alphabetic form. That was the thing that first fascinated me. I was working on um, what was called digital signal processing of seismic data. It was an early form of information technology. And when I attended this conference, uh, had a session on the origin of life and learned that the unsolved mystery for chemical evolutionary theorists was the origin of the information in DNA, I was fascinated, got hooked on the question. And that's what I ended up studying in grad school and doing a PhD on the origin of life biology within the philosophy of science department at Cambridge. So um, the, the, the scientific evidence came after, for me, a uh, religious conversion that was uh, predicated in, in, in at the beginning on largely philosophical considerations. But uh, now I find lots of, lots of reasons for faith, if you will. How did you handle the frustration of, uh, if you will, some of your own? I mean, I, I would speak, I, I'm a Christian. I come from a Judeo-Christian uh, vantage point. I wasn't raised that way, uh, but adopted it later. And I am sometimes embarrassed by those uh, in my own league, if you will, or uh, community, as people like to say today, uh, with great frustration. I mean, you know, you, you hear uh, very spurious, questionable things said uh, with the best of intentions, which are frankly embarrassing as a Christian, uh, one of which is, you know, Darwin on his deathbed recanted. Well, first of oh, all, right. he didn't. And, and secondly, didn't, even yes. if he did, <laughs> he still have to deal with Darwinism. And uh, he still have to, to deal with the, the argument that's presented. Um, as an intellectual, as a scientist, and yet a man of faith, did you ever have moments, or do you perhaps still have moments, where you just want to, you know, bang your head against the wall and say, "Why, why must I be, be beleaguered with both faith and having to be an, a constant apologist?" Now, it, it, it seems to me that what you do is you just essentially are doing in your work is saying, "Okay, well, as you said at the outset of this program, I'm presenting you this evidence." I recognize that there are people on both camps that want to push for, for various reasons because it's comforting for them to view the world in a, the cosmos in a particular fashion. But uh, did you have a moment when you went away on a retreat somewhere and just said to yourself, okay, this is how I'm going to deal with this ultimately challenging, perhaps frustrating, maybe even exciting venture for a life? Um, my, yeah, my conversion. I, I'm a Christian like you, and my conversion experience was protracted, tortuous, and in some ways painful. It took a long time for me to sort out all the things that I was thinking about. Explain the tortuous part. Um, I was prone, I think, just by temperament to overthink things. And so um, I, in the vernacular, accepted Christ in my 
late teen years, but then would wonder if any of this applied to me. What about these various philosophical questions? Um, I had a period of time where I wanted, I, I believed that Christianity was true, but I didn't want it to be true because it was restricting my uh, lifestyle in ways that I thought were, <laughs> yeah. you know, there, done that. it was yeah. this kind of internal push pull, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I, like many people have um, a kind of default impulse towards unbelief. You walk outside in the morning and you don't see God. You, you see air, you see trees, you see flowers, you see all kinds of things, but you don't directly see the deity. And um, I think one of the things that has helped me a great deal, I, I think the work I do, which invites a level of uh, abstract reflection, um, is something that's kind of helped keep me aligned myself as I, I think about faith. I, I definitely believe. And I uh, sometimes the things that I'm working on on a day-to-day -day basis will strike me afresh. Uh, the Dawkins tweet I mentioned that came out. Uh, it is extraordinary, the sophistication of the information processing system. It's an information storage processing and transmission system at the foundation of life and even the simplest cells. We did not expect to find that. And it should, it should have the effect of awakening us to a reality beyond our immediate uh, awareness. Um, so as far as what other people, how other people articulate their faith, or, or uh, I don't worry about that too much. I've had a sense of um, call, if you will, to explain reasons for faith in terms that will connect to people in a modern context, uh, modern scientifically informed context. And I think many, there are many sincere believers who don't have the benefit of the uh, the education that I was Vinacular. provided, or perhaps the turn of mind that I, I've been gifted with. And yes. so I more think that it's just, I have a kind of responsibility to explain things in ways that aren't embarrassing, if possible. <laughs> so. Okay. All right. Well, I want to talk about some things that I, you know, I reflected on when I was perhaps nine. Uh, and <laughs> the idea of looking for order now, you know, there's all this gap theory concept that, you know, we, we just, you know, happily hopscotch along in the world. And if we can't find an answer to anything, then the gap theory indicates that we've got to put something there and invariably it's God. Well, it's a great mystery and all of that. But, the, but there are things that even child can recognize, or at least this child did. Um, we have uh, planets that are spherical, balls in space. Uh, we have electrons, neutrons, and protons, as I understood it, at least were always depicted in, in you know, elementary school books, as little balls. Um, is there not a correlation with this, not only in relation to spherical matter, but in so many different areas where you just say, okay, here are the repeated patterns, and they're doing their stuff? Well, right. I, this is one of the most uh, obvious observations about nature, is there is this repetitive order. And the early scientists in the period of the scientific revolution believed that this repetitive order was the result of the sustaining power of a great mind. And um, there's a famous debate that took place between Leibniz and Newton, Newton through a surrogate uh, named Clark, about his theory of universal gravitation. Leibniz didn't like it because Newton disavowed any kind of mechanistic explanation for what caused gravitational attraction. If you think of the moon moving the tides, uh, the moon is uh, exerting some kind of gravitational force on, on the earth, according to Newton's theory, but the moon is not touching the earth. So how is the, how is the, the moon at that great distance actually pushing water? Um, and Leibniz was of the mindset, it was, he was a mechanical philosopher, many of the early scientists were, and, he, and their idea was that if you were to provide a true explanation, it should be in terms of pushing and pulling. Mm, mm, and he yes. presented Newton with a dilemma and said, well, either you think uh, you're believing in something essentially occult, which had a specific meaning at the time. It was the idea that you were treating the effect, the name of the effect as its cause, what causes gravitational motion 
well, gravity causes gravitational motion. Why, do, why does bread nourish? Because it has a nutritive property. Why does opium put you to sleep? Because it has a dormative property. He says, that, that's not really an explanation. That's just naming something and, and naming the effect as its own cause. And it seems to me, Newton, you've either done that or you're positing the unseen activity of the deity as the basis of these regularities. Because the one thing you haven't done is provided a mechanical pushing and pulling explanation. And Newton came back and very coyly, because he didn't want to be saddled with either of these uh, options, uh, publicly said, well, hypothesis non-fingo, I don't propose to, I, I don't feign to know the cause. But in a letter privately to uh, Bishop Bentley, who queried him on the same, uh, the same issue, he acknowledged that, yeah, he thought that, that it was inconceivable that, uh, that something would transmit a force through a distance without such pushing and pulling. Th th therefore, it must be something immaterial, and it must be um, operating throughout all space and time in a perfectly regular and mathematical way. In fact, he wrote the Principia to reveal the mathematical mind of God. So for Newton, those regularities were absolutely a manifestation of, as one of my Cambridge supervisors put it, constant spirit action. Uh, this, was, this was God's way of holding the universe together. You had mentioned uh, getting up in the morning and then we go out and we see trees and birds and you had mentioned seeing air, which, uh, uh, forgive me, I thought to myself, how does one... <laughs> I suppose you don't see that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see empty space. Yeah, Where's yeah, God exactly. in it? Where's but, the but God you, in you it? see the effect yeah. of air with you know, leaves yeah. rustling and, and what have you. But um, I've often thought, you know, about the, the whole concept of spirit uh, outside the frame of limitation of just Christianity, just the idea of that which is non-tangible existing. How do you explain that which is non-tangible and non-material? Uh, uh, theologically, you seem comfortable with it. Are you scientifically comfortable with it? Well, actually, this is one of the reasons I'm theologically comfortable with it, is that, is that science itself often posits the unobserved or unobservable entities in order to explain things that we can see. It's, a, it's actually a really brilliant question you've just asked, because this is the... This is, um, uh, pervasive in theoretical physics. It's actually part of the historical sciences. Um, and there's an underlying logical structure to these types of inferences. They're called abductive inferences, where you move from an effect back to its cause. You don't see the cause, but you see the effect of it. And therefore, based on our uniform and repeated experience, we can often posit a cause that we see in operation now as an operating in the past, or in the case of theoretical physics, Often the, the physicist posits something which, if true, would explain the phenomena, even though we don't see quarks, but we can posit their existence based on, the, on what we detect in particle accelerators and the, and the like. These are called, also called transdictive inferences in, by philosophers of science, but the idea that you move from an effect back to an unobserved cause in order to provide explanatory power. Um, or to provide an explanation. And there are all kinds of things in science that we accept as real and existing, though we don't directly observe them, but because we observe the indirect effects of their existence or their causal powers. Now, if that's a legitimate way of, of reasoning in science, it's certainly a legitimate way of reasoning about the deity itself. We don't see the deity, but we see the effects of, an, of a prior intelligence in many, many aspects of nature. So I do, I walk outside, I see the trees, I don't see God, but then I think, oh, but those leaves contain cells and inside those cells are molecular machines. And inside the, and the molecular machines are made of proteins that are built by instructions and stored in a molecule. And I know from my experience that instructions or information always comes from a mind. And so even though I don't see the deity directly, I see the evidence of the deity's activity or of, of, of an intelligent mind's activity in, in, in the things around me. So I think that, way, that indirect mode of reasoning, which is actually characteristic of advanced forms of theoretical science, is exactly the kind of reasoning that leads one upon reflection to the God hypothesis. I am treasuring every moment with my guest, Dr. Stephen C. Meyer. You're listening to Watching America. He is the author of a book entitled Return of the God Hypothesis. 
I want to ask you, and I, I, I hope that this will not be misconstrued in any way, because um, I fully acknowledge that your book is set apart in so many ways, mainly because of the thoroughness of it. And just about every review I've read regarding this work says that you are one of the most thorough writers without fault that people um, can encounter. But what makes your book, The God Hypothesis, or The Return uh, of the God Hypothesis, unique as opposed to other books that perhaps either more loosely or in a different fashion address these matters? Uh, yeah. Oh, that's a really kind, uh, kind of you to ask that. I, th there have been a number of great books on the relationship between uh, science and faith. Um, the, Gerald Schroeder, the great Israeli physicist, wrote a book, The Science of God, in which he focused on the, uh, the cosmological aspects of the argument that I, I make. There have been other books on the evidence for intelligent design and biology. Uh, what I attempted to do in this book was to synthesize those different strands of evidence to show that there was a compelling case, not just for a designer of some unspecified kind, but a designer that has specific attributes that are associated with a particular conception of God, namely a theistic conception where God is both transcendent and active in the creation. So I use a method of reasoning known as inference to the best explanation that is um, uh, commonly used in the sciences, commonly used by philosophers as well, but to act to adjudicate the explanatory power, compare the explanatory power of competing metaphysical hypotheses, including deism and uh, uh, materialism, pantheism, theism. And I even look at the, the space alien designer hypothesis that uh, Richard Dawkins uh, floated at the end of the expelled film that you mentioned. I think I think Professor Dawkins now regrets ever having speculated in that way. But uh, I so I but I do look at these different possible explanations for the whole range of evidence that we have about biological and cosmological origins. The evidence we have of a, of a beginning, of the fine tuning from the beginning, and the evidence of the informational properties of life. Um, so it's a synthetic case for theism that draws together multiple lines of evidence. Um, the other thing I think is, is uh, perhaps unique about the book is that I do this in the context of an overall narrative, telling the story of the rise of modern science within, from within a Judeo-Christian uh, context for, uh, I argue, Judeo-Christian reasons. Uh, the, the, the waning of that perspective during the late 19th century as scientific materialism came to be the dominant philosophy of science. And now the return of at least evidence for theism, and I think increasingly um, a theistic belief among many great scientists. Um, so I think the argument structure of the book and also the narrative structure um, are, are things that I, I, I attempted to do that I, I hadn't seen done before. And now, finally, a uh, from left field question, just for grins. Uh, we are now having various people uh, suggesting that we can control our environment, uh, you know, whether you want to get into global warming uh, uh, as adhering to it or not. We do know that the temperature goes up. The cause is perhaps debatable. But this idea now that we float particles, reflective particles out in the atmosphere, um, if you will, trying to set the thermostat for planet Earth, uh, you know, there's always this continual argument of people in the scientific community trying to play God. But this would seem to be upping the ante a lot, the idea of, of making, if you will, uh, a reflective surface to cut down on sunlight coming in uh, and literally cooling the earth. It has great implications uh, as far as the geography of the planet, political geography of the planet. What is your take on that? Well, that, I, I guess... Uh... I haven't thought about that a great deal, but that sounds like an attempt to um, enhance the design of the planet that made the planet uh, habitable in the first place. Uh, I have two colleagues, Guillermo Gonzalez and uh, Jay Richards, who have written a fascinating book called Privileged Planet, in which they argue that we are in that Goldilocks zone, not only in the universe, but it, within our galaxy, a galactic habitable zone where all the parameters are just right. We're just the right distance from the sun, just the right axial tilt of the Earth as it's in its rotation. Um, I, I suppose I'm a little bit instinctively skeptical about our ability to fine tune such a magnificent um, global system. But um, 
who knows what what the scientists who are studying climate will come up with on that. So uh, it, it it is interesting that um, if in fact the assessments of the climate change problem are correct, that people recognize that what's happening is that we're getting pushed out of a, a very propitious uh, zone of uh, convergent factors all being just right. And that therefore we need a little bit of redesign. So <laughs> it's a little bit like what medical people do, I suppose, where they recognize the design of the body. And when something goes wrong, uh, they, they do their level best to re restore proper function. So your position would be essentially if it ain't completely broken, don't mess with it and fix yeah, yeah. it. We, we ought to be pretty careful about messing around <laughs> with something as beautifully finely tuned as the Earth's... Uh, the big blue um, marble, yes. The, yes, the privileged planet. It's yeah. very beautifully, the whole system's beautifully designed. So many parameters are just right. Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, I will share with the audience that um, I pleaded with you to give us extra time and you so graciously uh, awarded that to us and, and we are incredibly grateful. I'm sure the audience is. Um, thank you, sir. Thank you for your humanity. Thank you for your candor, expertise, uh, your magnificent lexicon of, of terms. Uh, you pay us all a great honor by gently but also in no way condescendingly explaining things, and uh, we are all the richer for it. I hope the next time you write a book, Stephen, that you will call us up and let us know because um, you have a ready slot anytime you would like to be back on Watching America. Well, I thank you, Alan. This is one of the most thoughtful interviews I've had. Wonderful questions. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I, I just want to thank you, and I'm so grateful to my senior producer, Gina Gamboni, who is also part of the thought mechanism of how we put the show together. Uh, I often conclude with this, Stephen, so I'm going to uh, uh, certainly feel very comfortable doing it with you. I want to thank you, and I just want to say God bless. And you too. <laughs> right. And uh, uh, let's say he exists to bless us. Yeah, <laughs> I think he does. <laughs> I think he does. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer and Heather Mazzoni is Chief of Content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.